to Hebrews chapter 10. Coming away from that catechism question to begin to navigate through the application of Christ, the application of what has been demonstrated in all the previous chapters of what's been secured in Christ, the application of Christ in the believer's life, the Christian experience, the Christian's experience. Chapter 10, beginning with verse 19 down to 25, I'll read. Chapter 10, 19-25. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies watched with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Dear church, do you recall the account that's recorded for us in the Gospel of John chapter 9? of where the blind man is miraculously healed by Jesus and he's given his sight. Do you remember that story? Do you remember how that the religious leaders during that time, they hastened the blind man who now has been given sight into their religious courtroom and they did everything they could to get him to deny Jesus. They tried to use fear and pressure against him. Do you recall they got to his parents? They, they, they successfully got his parents to cower and, and reject the miracle that had taken place. However, they couldn't do that to the blind man, could they? He said in verse 25 of that chapter, be impressed and be impressed. He said, whether he, this man Jesus, be a sinner or no, I know not. But one thing I know. Whereas I was once blind, now I can see. Well, we know that the blind man did not only receive his physical sight that day, did he? But he also was given the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith to believe that Jesus, that man who had healed him, was the Messiah, long prophesied as the the greater son of David, who would do such things as give sight to the blind, restore the lame, heal the sick, And this man would not deny that Jesus and or his gospel message was sent from God, would he? Blindness, sight, spiritual darkness, spiritual illumination. It's interesting, is it not, that in the wisdom of God, all of the stage of creation is telling this story of how God opens the eyes. He applies salvation 
to darkened, blind sinners. He demonstrates a sovereign love and He opens their eyes and they can see. They experience salvation. They experience the Gospel through His merciful and His sovereign kindness. Speaking of blindness and the opening of a man's eyes, recall the story of Saul of Tarsus. How that he was purposely made blind to humble him in a, in a lonely place of darkness, this proud, this strong, this seemingly important religious man was brought to his knees in darkness so that he could what? Experience the light. He could experience, he could experience the spiritual awakening of a new birth. And oh, what amazing story is recorded of Paul's life afterwards. Amen. You see, friends, where God the Spirit applies the salvation, applies the blood of Christ, as we have been learning in chapters 1 through 8 and then into 9, there is a radical difference in the person's life. There is this earnestness, this desire to want to live for the glory of God. And come hell or high water, nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever have that person deny who Jesus Christ is. They will profess, they will confess that Jesus Christ be praised until the very end of their day. Now it is true that the blind man in John 9 and Saul of Tarsus are two very different men in redemptive history. However, their need was the same. They needed the application of the blood of Christ to their poor, depraved, wretched souls. And even though they were different men, they were saved the same way. And when they became saved, they shared very similar commonalities. Notice with me in just the short recall of those stories, how they both possessed an ironclad resolve that Jesus was who He claimed to be. They would not waver You remember all the things, children, that the Apostle Paul went through. People trying to get him to denounce who Jesus claimed Jesus was. No, he knew Jesus was the Messiah. He knew the gospel message was true. And no matter how hard those religious leaders tried, they could not get that blind man to deny Jesus. You see, when the application of Christ, the very first thing that begins in a Christian's experience is this resolve and this commitment that Jesus Christ is to be praised until the end of the world. They will not deny Him. They will follow Him into death itself. Notice the second thing too that happened to them in their beginning of Christian experience. They had a boldness. They had a confidence. Didn't they? And we saw this in the life of the first century church. There was this boldness to not fear men. To not fear men. They had so much to gain, Nolan, to to go back to the old ways. To go back for the Roman Greco culture that the gospel came into they had everything to gain to go back in the pagan religions and the context we're reading today in hebrews we've been walking through they had everything to gain brother Grizz, to go back to the old covenant judaistic ways and renounce christ but they didn't fear men but something else in combination with a sold out allegiance to christ and something else with a lack of the fear of men as part of the confidence and the experience of a Christian when Christ's blood is applied, there's something else that's there underlining as well, which we are beginning to see again here in Hebrews chapter 10. And that is 
We are still men and women of the flesh. We still men and women of the flesh. We still have fears. We still have doubts. And we have to, again and again, be pointed to what? Christ. To Christ. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 6, there was one of the harshest warnings to the Christian community ever recorded in the Bible? And we had to ask ourselves, why in the world is he talking to Christians this way? It was because there was something pressing in against them. There was something tempting them to actually either bring an ordinance, a ritual, another teaching alongside the gospel message, or to just deny the gospel message altogether. And he gave them one of the most severest rebukes. If you take that step, there's no more blood for you. There's no more hope for you. Well, that's what he begins to do here in chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to the end of this book, chapter 13. He's going to walk us through the various aspects of Christ applied in our lives and show us much of ourselves. He's going to show us aspects when we as Christians are bold with confidence. Because of what Christ has done, we come into the throne of God, we have access to Him. Oh, it's a joy, it's a new lively faith we read today to be long to Jesus and not under the old covenant shadows, to have the substance and to be free in Christ. But there still is some other things he knows about us in this Christian experience. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we can be tempted. He knows that we can be afraid at times. And so he gives more admonitions. He gives more exhortations to help us be honest with ourselves and to help us see we have a blueprint here that he gives us to help us pull together as saved, bold lines of Christ, but yet at times people who can be shaken and whose faith can be weak. And he gives us practical instructions of how to move forward in the Christian experience through Christ and all the new covenant blessings that we have received. And so how are we going to go through the text today? Well, I propose to you, first of all, in beginning this journey, outlining our Christian experience, let us consider first in verses 19 to 21, that having Christ and having the new covenant realities given to us, friends, we experience confidence. We ought to, we should be experiencing boldness and confidence because of what Christ has done. You see the transition in the text quite naturally. He says, having therefore. That's the transitional phrase. Well, what's he talking about? You know what he's talking about. All that preaching of the blood, all that preaching of Christ alone, all that preaching by faith alone, all that preaching that the new covenant is different than the old covenant, and it has been secured, your salvation, your justification, by Christ. Having therefore that. Having a firm grasp of that, he says, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. I think it's precious at this point that he reminds them in their time of whatever was shaking them, that he still sees them as brethren. They are still confessing the faith. They have not abandoned it yet. And so as he's recognizing the, perhaps some of their limitations and their fears, he still recognizes them as brethren. And in this place today, as we all come to the Lord's Supper, in so much as you're proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord, 
despite your imperfections, despite the week you've had, despite even maybe what you said to me. Maybe, no one has, by the way. <laughs> but it's, you, you can get the picture. No matter what's happened between us, we come to this place and we say, Jesus Christ be praised. We believe and we trust only in Him. You are my sister. You are my brother. And in so much as we have Christ and we confess Him to be Lord over our lives, He is the one true federal head of this new covenant. We will work things out. If we keep that in place and keep our eyes upon Him, we're still brethren. So he says, brethren, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, most times you hear this preached, nothing wrong with it. It's um, preached in such a way that where in the Christian experience, there is this liberty. There is this boldness that comes. And in the Greek word, it means just that. It means a liberty to speak. It means like, uh, have you ever, ever, any of you ever been in a courtroom situation uh, where you come in and it's very regulated? You only speak when the judge acknowledges you. You only speak when you're given permission to speak. Well, the Greek word here carries with the idea that as these covenant children of Christ, by faith alone, in his sacrificial work alone, what, is, what happens? We're afforded an opportunity to come into the throne room of God and talk to him. Talk to him reverently like a father, of course. But there's a freedom, there's an access that's been secured for us. And so that's part of the Christian experience. We should feel, because of the certainty of Christ's work, brothers and sisters, we ought to feel that liberty. Now, there are many things, we know all the Bible talks about it, that clouds that liberty. It clouds the liberty that Christ has afforded us. Times, most of the time, it's often our own sins. Secondly, it's often our neglect of the means of grace by which he gives us to remind us of that liberty and stay in communion with him. And thirdly, sometimes it's just the, 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 the effects of living in a fallen, sinful world. We can't help it when other people you know, come at us the wrong way or sin against us. So while that Greek word means that, and that is the thrust of the passage, understand also this boldness, what it's predicated upon in the verse. Uh, it's subjective yes you should feel that way you should foster that heart attitude in your life why because of the objective truth that it's based upon the blood of jesus christ it's not based upon you this boldness this access this new relationship that you have with your creator your heavenly father should be yes felt but why should it be felt why should it be experienced Because of what you believe Jesus has done and what the gospel says he has accomplished. That he really was God who came in the flesh and who died upon the cross so that you who deserved hell could be forgiven and accepted. Oh, when you rest your heart upon the foundations of the gospel, you will, you cannot help but experience this access and this boldness because you look away from yourself. And you look to the blood of Jesus. How many of us in here would raise our hands? You don't have to do it. But raise your hands. And you come into the throne room. The chamber as if it were. I'll go as far as saying the intimate bedchamber of the Father God. It's open to you. No one knows he has to knock on the door if he's going to a bedroom because it's just appropriate. That could be changing. But he has access, you see. My son has access into the most intimate rooms of my life. There's nothing hidden for him. He's not barred from any of those. He knows he can come into that. And friends, how many of us go into our prayer closet 
into that intimate chamber with our Father. And we say, oh, Father, you know truthfully what I have done this week. You know where I have been. Oh, Father, I'm only coming to you covered by the righteousness of Jesus. But I know you hear me. I know you love me. You see, that's a relationship. That's a dialogue. That's a conversation that's being articulated in here in our Christian experience that we should, if we don't have it, foster in our prayer lives, friends. Brethren, therefore, all of these things you say you have experienced, I'm telling you, has been prophesied with boldness, that freedom we have access to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, do you remember how much he's been contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant? They, you, we've talked about this before. In their worship of God, they didn't have that access. Only the priests were allowed to go into the inner chamber, and then only the high priest was allowed to go into the holiest. But now, because of the covenant, successful, the successful accomplishment of the covenant work of Jesus upon the cross, all of those who are his sons and daughters by faith, they can have direct access with God. AJ, you don't have to come to me to have access to the holiest of God. You don't have to. I was watching a documentary last night about the atrocities of an African missionary organization where a Roman Catholic priest pretty much used it, his superiority and his authority over this little missionary colony that he was the vicar of Christ on, you know. Now, he wouldn't say he was the vicar of Christ, get the point, but they, it was just, the documentary was just talking about how these lower educated people in Africa look at this God, or this guy like he was God himself, and how he abused that authority. Naomi, through Christ, you have complete freedom to the God who made you. You do not have to go to a pastor. You do not have to go to your daddy. You do not have to go to anybody but God himself through Jesus. This is a blessing, friend, that we experience as a Christian. And notice how he describes our experience as Christians in verse 20. It's a new and it's a lively way which we have, which he, Jesus, has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. This is the only way. He's been building up to this point from the very beginning. Uh, chapter of Hebrews 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. There's no other way after this. In these last days, Jesus has spoken. God has revealed the way, the new covenant way through Jesus Christ. He goes on to see here for those who are given the grace, the eyes of faith, like the blind man in John 9, to see this, this only way, this last way. Oh, he calls it a new way. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, remember where he's been at in the contrast of the old covenant way. It's in complete opposition to that way. That way, friends, it was described as weak, as faulty, it had limits. But this last and this new way, this is the way into eternal life. Those who will enter in through this way, they will find this newness of life. Those who continue to want to try to find another way that circumvents the cross work of Jesus, circumvents the gospel of Jesus, oh, it always demonstrates to be a dead, cumbersome way. 
Try to go back to the old covenant works-based system is what he's telling them. Experience, stay in, participate, profess, stay connected to Christ in the living way. The other way will lead you to a place of bondage and despair. We cannot add anything to the finished work of Jesus. Jesus, via this new covenant arrangement, is the new way, and he describes it, you see in your text, as a living way. It would be, he's trying to convey to them absolute death to go back to the way of the covenant of works, which really all of those old covenants were in some way conditioned by works. Me and a brother were talking just before church and he's been in conversations with people about covenant theology and particularly the Old Testament and all of its different covenant arrangements. Whether it's with Abraham, whether it's with Noah, whether it's with David or Moses, all of them had a conditional aspect to it. There were many times gracious aspects given to it because they didn't deserve any good thing from God, right? They were sinners. They were rebellious. They deserved judging and, and cursing. But he gave them some guidelines in which they could participate in blessedness, didn't he? But every single one of them, every single one of them had a condition. Every single one. For all the good things we could say about Abraham's covenant, go right over to chapter 17. If he did not follow the circumcision sign, it would have brought cursings upon him and his household. Why would you want to go back to that, the, the inspired writer here is saying? Oh, your experience in your Christian experience, not only the boldness and the access to the Father, but a new and a living way, you first century Jews who were created out of Judaism, you 21st century Christian, who in your times in the lost world were thinking that you could appease or you could add to your right standing with God by buying groceries for your neighbor. Or my guilty thing was, is I'll shovel the snow, I'll shovel my neighbor's driveway and I feel better, like I'm earning brownie points with God. That's the dead way. That's the dead way. No man is righteous before God. All of our righteousness, Isaiah the prophet said, is like filthy rags. All but the living way. When you know it's all upon Christ and Him alone. Friends, this is a new and a lively hope and a lively way. As A.J. was reading in Romans 5. We have, thankfully, a resurrected living Savior. Amen. A.J. emphasized that in his reading. Because this is the living way. Moses died and he was buried. The prophets died and they were all buried. Why would you want to go back to any system that had its representatives who were in the grave rotting and decaying? No, Jesus Christ has risen. He's already expounded at the right hand of the Father and He is there making intercession for you and I. This is the experience of the Christian. The joy, as Hercules Collins said in the Catechism, the joy you have with God made possible through Jesus. It's a living way. Notice, in our text too, a further description in verse 20 about this experience we have. It's been consecrated, or in some modern translations it says inaugurated for us through the veil that is Jesus' flesh. And this of course is a reference, isn't it, to the veil that was used in the temple and the tabernacle worship. He's been contrasting a lot with the Old Testament worship. And this veil we see here, it served as a shadow, which many things in the Old Testament did to signify the flesh of Jesus Christ that would be offered up. 
And do you remember what happened upon the cross when Jesus finally gave up His Spirit and He says it is finished? The veil in the temple was torn in two. And for many people, the very first time they ever got to see behind that veil into the holiest of holies. Many theologians believe and commentators believe that that veil at the time of the hour Jesus actually gave up voluntarily the, the Spirit upon His death. It was in the evening time. It was during their evening sacrificial worship time. And the veil was ripped. And they saw through into the holiest of holies where God would meet with the high priest. It's pointing, wasn't it, to a picture that Jesus, when He gave His life, He gave all of us access to God the Father. Highway to heaven, my friend, you see here clearly in our text that which we are to experience, to be confident in, and to be bold in. We glorify God when we do this is through a crucified Savior. Savior who has died and who has risen again. To us, He is precious. To us, He is not dead. To us, He has risen. To us, He is our Lord. Well, in verses 19 and 20, the author here, inspired by the Spirit, is seeking to excite us to this new experience and this relationship we have with God the Father, isn't he, friends? But now he further expands in verse 21. Notice with me, especially what we talked about last week with Psalms 110. He expands, I believe here in verse 21, on the position, the session, and the activity of Jesus Christ. Look back what we looked at um, last week. Go to verse 11. Remember there he was building up to include Psalms 110, this victorious work of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He said every priest, talking about the old way, the old priest, they stand daily. They have to because uh, uh, they can't make men perfect through their sacrifices. They have to stand daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Ah, but verse 12, this man, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down on the right hand of God. And I sought to convince you that this is the right interpretation of Psalms 110. Having a high priest over the house of God in verse 21, we're seeing this picture. We have him. It is accomplished. He is sitting at the right hand of God. He is mediating for His people. We should find great encouragement by this. The work is done. Salvation has been secured for all the elect. And in the future, those who Christ purchased upon the cross, His Spirit will come. And His Spirit will work upon their hearts. And they will come to confess that He is Lord and that He is God and that He is at the right hand of the Father. This verse 21 is speaking of position. He is over the house of God. Now think back to what we talked about last week in Psalms 110, this conquering, victorious, covenant warrior that Christ is. When it says He's over the house of God, it's not just this church here. No, He's over all of the house of God around the world, what people call the church militant, or what the people call, or what theologians call the church in pilgrimage. All of us here, we are passing through, friends, right? He is the high priest over all of the church around the world, but also, you know, there's worshiping going on in heaven right now, amen? 
Do you remember talking back in chapter 9 about the heavenly sanctuary? How Jesus Christ, after his sacrifice and his resurrection, as if it were, comes into that holy temple, which the earthly temple was but a shadow. And he is there, friends, leading in worship all of those who have already passed on. That's why we got down in the trenches back in chapter 9, verse 15. Addressing the concerns of the first century Jews. What about grandpa and grandma who has passed away already, who believed in the coming Messiah? Oh, they're with Jesus. You remember he led the captivity captive, if you would agree with my interpretation of Ephesians 4, and you agree with my interpretation of Abraham's bosom. It's okay if you don't agree with it. You can go the other route. But at the end of the day, all of us are going to up the same place. Jesus Christ is being praised in heaven now. As the high priest... He is there interceding. He is there, is he not, beloved? Pointing out the glory of God's covenant plan, which every elect saint who is in heaven at this moment is saying, Jesus Christ, be praised. But also his session. I think that this verse speaks or it must force us to ask the question, when did this begin? Verse 19 told us, by the blood of Jesus. He became that high priest over the house of God through this new covenant arrangement by the sacrifice of his blood. And you can never say enough about the blood. And his activity here, of course, this outline I've already alluded to, he is the high priest in this place. Upon all of these extraordinary privileges that we experience as the new covenant church, now in verses 20 through to 25, The inspired writer invites us, rather he earnestly implores us to engage, beloved, in the new covenant life. In the new covenant life. Why does he do this, Abby? Because he knows himself. Notice the text. There's three times he does it. He says, let us. He's included himself. He knows he is but a sinner saved by grace. He knows that he is yet but a work in progress. He knows that he is but a man who still has the old nature within him, exclaiming like Paul does in Romans 7, warring against the Spirit. And so he invites you to join him, Naomi, in the fight, in the new covenant life, to do some things that you need to do in order to make it unto the end. And so now our ears perk up. Because next week in verse 26, he gives the second most harshest warning in combination with chapter 6 of Hebrews ever given to the church. So see, this is all preparatory work for you to see what he's doing here. He's giving you the roadmap as a Christian in this pilgrimage journey as a new covenant believer to oh, rest in Christ Oh, to be joyful in this wonderful place God has you through Christ, this confidence, this new fellowship. But it comes with some responsibility. It comes with this responsibility. Of course, I'm not speaking of your justification, friend. Of course, I'm not speaking in those terms. But I'm talking about someone who's been given such a wonderful gift. You want to... You want to... Um, you want, to, uh, what do you, you, you want to care for that gift. Amen? Uh, you, you, you want to be mindful of that gift. And look at what he's saying. It is absolutely unfathomable that after everything I've explained to you in chapters 1 through 8, that you've been given in Christ. 
Why would you not want to draw near to God? Why would you want to remain distant from God? And so, that's the first thing he implores them to do, you see, to draw near to God in verse 22. He's saying here, basically, you've been given Christ. And oh, now, dear Christian, fellow Christian, let us, because we must, draw near to God. Since this way of access, since this way of return, this new and living way has been given to us, it's the greatest exhibit of ingratitude and contempt to not come and draw near to God. It is not my purpose here today to make you feel condemned of your personal prayer life. I do not know that, but God knows that. But here, see what He's doing. He's saying what you've been given to Uh, your salvation, what you've been granted in Christ, it comes with it. Oh, it ought to excite you to draw near to God. It's vital. We're going to get to verse 26 next week, but understand what he's doing. He loves you, this inspired writer. He cares for you. He knows himself. And so could he have heard some were not drawing near to God? Friends, heed the instructions here from a faithful friend. Draw near to God. You've been given free access to the Father through Christ. We must draw near. How in humble adoration. Especially when we reveal in contrast to the old covenant that everything's been done for us by Christ. Even though we deserved to die on the cross, He took our place. And so when we draw near to God, of course, it's in humble adoration. That goes without saying. Us who were once His enemies, referring back to Psalms 110 and chapter 9, who have now been made His servants, worshiping at His footstool, we must draw to Him in holy dependence. Amen. The gospel message through Hebrews 1 through 9, when we draw near to God, it's a heart of total dependence. And may I add, while we have this liberated freeness to our Heavenly Father, He still is a Father. He still is to be respected in His divine majesty. He's not our chum. He's not our homeboy. You hear me say that oftentimes. It goes without saying, when He's changed your heart, you see His, His holy indignation and wrath for sin on the cross. And so you come in His presence with humbleness, adoration, dependency, and complete, strict reverence for who He is. He is your God, your Maker. Notice with me, moving forward, after telling us how to draw near to God, now He gives us really how to approach God. He says to do it in your text with a true heart. What's this mean with a true heart? Well, without a heart of hypocrisy. Jeremiah 17.10 teaches us that God is the discerner of heart. He sees everything, friend. You do not, you should not, you ought not ever as a new covenant Christian with access now to the Father because of the blood covering of Jesus Christ come into the intimate chambers with your Father God who has forgiven you, who has given you His beloved Son with any hidden things in your life. He tells you. He invites you. Covered in sins, in your own bad choices, come, I want to hear from you. Through my son Jesus, come, I want to talk with you. But what's being said here in this text is never come 
into the prayer closet under this great immaculate privilege you have through Christ and play games with God, friends. He knows everything. You can fool me, you can fool your spouse, you can fool your siblings, you can fool your parents, but you cannot fool God. And so you come to Him with what? A true heart. A heart that says, God, you see all and know all. Come to Him with a true heart. Even in the mind of a believer, it's amazing how much He talked about it back in Hebrews chapter 3. He talked about the deceitfulness of sin. That is spoken to a Christian community. It's amazing how we can become, at times, even upon right theology, deceived in our own minds and approach God with an untrue heart. The Apostle Paul says it very clearly. No drunkard, no liar, no fornicator, no this, no that will enter into the kingdom of God. Right? Does the Bible contradict itself? No. No, it doesn't. Understanding that that is a habitual practice of those things being described, if a good theology, meaning Christ alone by faith alone, gives you the deceived idea that you can come before God and not be laid prostrate in repentance over those grievous things that have become habitual in any of our lives, you are not drawing near to God with a true heart. There's the application. The writer saying, Come to Him in a true heart. Confess. Lay prostrate open. Oh God, in humble adoration, I'm dependent upon you. You know what's going on. A true heart. But also, oh, I can't miss this. Matthew Henry said this. Listen, friends, this this is the icing on the cake about this. Sincerity, he says. Truthfulness. Humble transparency with God. When you're in prayer... He says, sincerity is our gospel perfection. What he means there is our gospel maturity, though not our justifying righteousness. Right? You're not getting brownie points by doing that. It's an exhibit of gospel maturity. God, I know you know all things. I, I know I need to continue a fountain of grace to forgive me. I'm here in this prayer closet because I have nowhere else to go. And Jesus has covered me by His blood in order that I may come to you as a father and ask for and plead with you to help me and assist me. You see. This is the case. I was talking to someone this week. This is always the case when there's conflict and when there's things that happen within the community of Christians. You're looking for what Matthew Henry is calling the sincerity of gospel maturity. Does a man, does a woman own what they've done? Or they try to minimize it, deflect it, so forth and so on. Come with a true heart before God. And notice also, and I can already tell we're going to have to go into split this message up. He says, come with a full assurance of faith. A full assurance of faith. A faith that is fully persuaded that when we come to God with a true heart, that we will have an audience with God. He's telling you to lay aside, to maintain this new covenant experience, lay aside all distrust. 
Oh, God doesn't want me to come to Him this week. I've acted such a fool. I've said such mean things to my wife. Talked to her brother this week. Can't even begin to walk in His shoes. Lack of sleep. Stresses of life. So forth and so on. And oh, with a true heart. He said to me, Brother, this week I've had a hard week in my flesh. What did I say to him? Go to Christ. Go to God your Father. He knows what you're going through. He knows the circumstances. Don't you let that in any way, shape, or form, dear saint, make you feel or distrust the love of God for you through Christ. Run to God. Christ is going to hold your hand all the way, if I may use the illustration. Full assurance of faith that the gospel's true, what Jesus did is true, and what you profess is still true. Lay aside all sinful distrust because the writer is going to tell us, again, dealing with Christian experience, He's going to further disciple us in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, without faith, without this full assurance of faith of what Jesus claims, what He says He's done, He's made you pure in His righteousness. Without this, you cannot please God. You cannot please Him. The stronger our faith is, friends, in those moments when we least feel like we're strong is when we most glorify God. When we most glorify God. That's why Paul says... In my weakness, he is strong. It's, it's, it's like it, the Christian life is full of these paradoxes. You would think that you're the strongest in God's eyes, that you glorify Christ and his gospel the most when you're walking, right, in the footsteps of Jesus. And boy, you're just showering, washing your wife in the water of the word. You're consistent. You're leading family worship all the way you're supposed to as the head of the house. And oh, what about you ladies? You know, you're doing everything. You're being that faithful help me. You're just telling him how much you love him when he comes home from work and how hard he works. And you're so appreciative of him. And you know, you got everything in the house. You're managing that all well and everything. You would think that that's when... You're the strongest. You would think that that's when you're most glorifying God. But the Bible actually teaches the opposite. It teaches the opposite. When you most feel like giving up and you actually come to Him is when you glorify Him the most. Come with the full assurance of faith, Christian. Notice it says here too, when we come to Him, Our hearts, we must be convinced, have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. Meaning, we have a believing application of the atoning work of Jesus upon ourselves. Like, like we we hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to the truth of its claims and my need for it. And we believingly apply that sacrifice to all of my guilt, all of my failures, and all of my shames. A believing application of the blood of Christ sprinkles Old Testament language. You remember in the Old Testament worship, they would consecrate, they would make pure, they would make ready for use all of the furniture all of the little things by sprinkling the blood of the sacrifices upon them. We talked about that. And here you see he's mentioning that and he's he's weaving it in here in the connection with the full assurance of faith 
for you to constantly be believingly applying this blood of Christ upon an evil conscience. An evil conscience. One that is not wanting to believe the power, the promise of what Christ's blood work did on the cross. An evil conscience that's wanting to um, constantly seek if there's a way that I can add to that cross work of Christ. Our hearts, when sprinkled with believing application of the gospel, the claims of Christ's blood, is the only prescription God has given you for an evil conscience. There's no other prescription. You cannot appease your conscience with good works. You cannot appease your conscience by anything else but simply, but powerfully believing what Jesus has done. Notice coming to Him in prayer is connected with this phrase, our bodies being washed with pure water. Our bodies being washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience by belief in the blood of Jesus' cross word, and our bodies washed with pure water. He's obviously referring here to Christian baptism, but he's doing it in the context of the Old Testament worshiping system that they had where the priest could not even come into their priestly work unless they first did a ceremonial washing. Here, the, the, the pure water that's being identified here isn't like uh, you get the water from uh, uh, DeSante's laboratories where it's been filtered, you know, micro-filtered. Can you guys believe that a bottle of water is like around, you know, $1.50 to $2 now? But, but beside the point, our grandfathers would be rolling over the grave and knew we were paying $2 for a bottle of water. But the, what it's talking about is talking about these waters that we have in this blessed ordinance that the church has been given to come and to symbolize. Remember what we said last week? It's a shadow. It's not the substance. But it's to symbolize that, yes, we do believe in the blood application of Christ. Yes, we do believe with full assurance of faith that He is who He says He is and He has done and accomplished for me what He says He has accomplished. It is with this public demonstration that we are recorded as being part of spiritually the universal church around the world, but more importantly, as we see in the New Testament, through baptism signifying that we belong to a local body of believers. Here we see, I believe, and many commentators agree, the old guys at least, that there's a pattern for us in this verse that's showing some things that ought to be in place in a new covenant believer's life in order to help experience the full blessing of the new covenant. And so while we would, yes, as anti-sacramentalists say, this was a conversation before church, baptism does not add to your justification. Baptism does not save you. You can be a Christian and not have had baptism. Oh, dear friends, we see here in part of the experience of the Christian, the part of the preserving part of a Christian, making it under the end, professing which he's going to say in the next verse, we'll get to next week. Part of it is uniting yourself 
through a disciple's baptism with the local church, a body of believers. When these things, this furniture, you can say that way, is put into place, oh, we come before God in prayer and we draw near to Him. Well, we're going to have to look at the other uh, earnest pleas that he's putting forth of holding fast the profession of faith and then the one another's, and then we'll go right into the warning in verse 26. I thought I was going to handle that separate, but it'll work nicely. You see, you get the contours right. You get the roadmap of what he's doing here in Hebrews 10. He's wanting to help you as a new covenant believer whose eyes have been opened to the truth of Jesus Christ, who's yet but a man, woman, boy, or girl, still struggling in the weaknesses of your flesh. He's wanting to give you practical things that you can do to continue unto the end in the newness of life. How in the world can anyone ever say that the book of Hebrews doesn't have something for the New Testament church? (laughs) This is all about the church of Christ. Then first century Jews, now today, a mixed bag. Oh, but the work, the challenges, the blueprint, it's still the same. Amen? It's still the same. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we humbly draw near to you. As we have been learning in today's message, we draw near to you through and in the name of Jesus Christ, our high priest, our mediator. And oh God, our Father, we humbly confess to you our sins. We humbly confess to you, Lord, that we fail in so many areas in so many ways. And oh God, we humbly confess that we still believe that Jesus Christ's blood, it cleanses us, it covers us, and you see us in His righteousness and not our own unrighteousness. We believe in the power of the blood. We believe, O Lord, in the efficacy of the blood. We believe in your gospel promises. And yet, O Lord, I do not know every heart that is here this morning. I only know my own, and O God, as I come before you leading in prayer here with these saints, I ask, would you minister to anyone here today, Lord? Minister to anyone here today who, O God, is is not coming with a true heart. Lord, confessing sin and knowing, O Lord, those areas in their life where they need your fatherly, lovingly help. Lord, let them... And let not me, let not them, let not us all, Lord, uh, be, be deceiving ourselves and be ignorant of these things. Let they be at the front of our prayer requests, Lord, in humble dependency upon you. Lord, we know that you are able. We know that you are there. We know that you are faithful. We saw in our text today, which is a great motivating factor for us, oh Lord, in this experience that we have as new covenant Christians in Jesus as our mediator. Lord, bless, I pray, with the remainder of our service as we continue to look unto Christ, look unto Christ in what He has done for His glory, oh Lord, and for our needed benefit. We bless You and we thank You. In His holy name, amen.